Imagine you've spent your entire life trying to do the right thing. You play by the rules and stand up for the law. And now, suddenly, you're expected to break the law and lie, all to protect the most powerful man in the world. Would you do it? Or would you put everything you hold dear at risk in order to reveal the truth? Welcome to Whistleblowers, a Spotify original from Parcast. In this series, we explore the biggest lies in history through the eyes of the whistleblowers who risked everything to expose them. Today, we're telling the story of Mark Felt, the FBI agent who took on U.S. President Richard Nixon, putting his own career and reputation on the line in order to help reveal one of the biggest cover-ups in U.S. history, Watergate. This is a story that changed the course of American history, resulting in Nixon's resignation and damaging Americans' faith in their government forever. The identity of the mythical informant known as Deep Throat was also one of the country's longest-running mysteries. Mark only came forward with the truth a few years before his death. By then, his memory had mostly gone, leaving many of the details of his motivations and actions a mystery. Similarly, a number of the people involved in these events are now dead. As a result, we have done our best to reconstruct the story using the known facts. However, some truths will remain a mystery forever. When 28-year-old William Mark Felt received his first assignment as an FBI special agent in 1942, it was a dream come true. The ambitious young lawyer craved action and responsibility, and above all, he wanted to serve his country. Born and raised in Idaho, Mark had always been drawn to the adventure and importance of the nation's capital. Outgoing and friendly, he wanted to be in the proverbial room where things happened. The best way to do that, he'd heard, was to be a lawyer in Washington, D.C. So, in 1935, as soon as he finished his undergraduate studies, Mark moved to D.C. He got a job in his home state senator's office and attended law school at night at George Washington University. D.C. was everything Mark had hoped— his job gave him a front-row seat to see the practical applications of what he was learning. In 1938, Mark fell in love with and married a young woman who shared his values. Audrey worked for the Internal Revenue Service, and the two of them dreamt of the life they could build together serving their country in D.C. As soon as he graduated law school in 1940, Mark applied for a job at the Federal Trade Commission. The FTC helped protect consumers and stop unfair business practices, which appealed to Mark's sense of fairness. It didn't take long for Mark to be disappointed. His second assignment involved interviewing people about their toilet paper usage. He was supposed to figure out if a toilet paper brand called Red Cross had an advantage over other brands because people thought it might be connected to the American Red Cross. It was hardly the important work Mark had hoped for. Still, he threw himself into the case. After hundreds of interviews, all he really learned was that people didn't like being asked about toilet paper. If this was the kind of work he was going to do at the FTC, it was time to move on. 
There was one place in D.C. where Mark knew he wouldn't be bored. The Federal Bureau of Investigation. Since J. Edgar Hoover had taken over the Bureau in 1924 and renamed it the FBI in 1935, it had become a distinctly American institution. During Prohibition and the Great Depression, his FBI had earned a reputation for being fearless, gun-slinging lawmen who stood up for the law and protected Americans and the Constitution. Mark had never handled a gun, and the stories he'd heard about Hoover intimidated him. But he craved action, so he decided to give it a try. After a rigorous application process, Mark joined the FBI in January 1942. Over the next four months of training, he fell in love with the Bureau. The work was thrilling and important. He learned how to gather evidence in all kinds of cases, how to interview suspects and witnesses, how to write reports and testify in court. Yes, Director Hoover held his men, and they were all men, to sometimes impossibly high standards. But that was because he had fought hard to build the Bureau's impeccable reputation. Hoover's FBI was supposed to be independent of D.C.'s political machinations. The Bureau was technically part of the U.S. Department of Justice, and thus officially under the jurisdiction of the executive branch. However, Hoover had only taken the job on the condition that it would not take direction from the president. The FBI would only answer to the U.S. Attorney General. The Bureau upheld the law regardless of politics or individual politicians, and Hoover expected his men to be above reproach. For example, agents had to maintain a certain weight. Alcohol and coffee were strictly limited. Crisp suits were mandatory. And wives and girlfriends weren't allowed to tag along on out-of-town cases. As he learned to be an FBI agent, Mark admired Hoover's approach. He appreciated that the Bureau needed to maintain its reputation in order to be able to do its job effectively. The American people had to trust and believe in the FBI to uphold the law and defend the country. The Bureau had to honor that trust. When Mark finally received his first assignment as a special agent in 1942, he threw himself into his work. Over the coming years, he was assigned to FBI offices around the country. He did everything from catching bank robbers to chasing murderers across state lines. One of Mark's early assignments was back in D.C., not long after the U.S. entered World War II. There, he worked in the Domestic Intelligence Division, helping to track down Nazi spies in the U.S. He was trained up on espionage techniques, including codes and dead drops and the patterns of behavior to look for in a possible spy. When Mark single-handedly identified a potential German agent and brought the case to the Bureau's attention, his supervisors were impressed. Soon, he was promoted within the division. When the war ended three years after he'd joined the FBI, he was sent to Seattle as a counter-espionage expert to keep an eye on Soviet spies. As he worked his way up the ranks, being transferred between FBI offices every year or two, Mark began to focus his ambition. His regular moves had forced his wife, Audrey, to give up her career with the IRS. 
The constant relocations were a struggle for her and their two young children. Mark wanted a steadier job, and he wanted more responsibility. Which was why, in 1954, 12 years into his FBI career, he requested a meeting with Director Hoover himself. He walked straight into the director's office and told him that he wanted to be a special agent in charge. He wanted to run an FBI office. Hoover appreciated the younger man's determination and ambition. Four years later, in 1958, he put Mark in charge of the Kansas City field office, facing a powerful mob organization. Mark excelled there, impressing Hoover further. In 1962, Hoover brought him back to D.C. as the number two in the FBI's training division. After years in the field, Mark had to learn how to handle Washington's political games, in addition to his job training new agents. Two years later, Hoover promoted Mark to chief inspector of the inspection division, reporting directly to Hoover's number two. Mark was now one of the director's closest protégés and would be representing Hoover in FBI offices around the country. Hoover needed loyal agents like Mark in the 1960s. Between President John F. Kennedy's assassination, the Vietnam War, and the rise of the civil rights, women's liberation, and other counterculture movements, the United States was going through dramatic upheaval. In D.C., the rules were changing, too. Society's divisions were shifting the political agenda. The new generation wanted to fix a government they saw as old and stuck in the past, even as those in positions of power clung to it. As Hoover passed retirement age, he and his FBI increasingly became a relic of the past. Political operatives were tired of Hoover's despotism in the Bureau, and the executive branch wanted the FBI to work for its political interests now. Though the director continued to refuse, he knew he was part of the old guard, and his power was waning. When Richard Nixon became president in January 1969, the tension between the FBI and the rest of the executive branch ratcheted up. The new president was paranoid about leaks from within his administration that might undermine him and wanted the FBI to investigate. Hoover was happy to help Nixon's team with national security issues, which were within the FBI's purview. But much to the annoyance of Nixon's people, he drew the line at internal political struggles. He would not wiretap the president's own men just to keep them from talking to the press. So Nixon's attorney general, John Mitchell, and his team took matters into their own hands. They established a group that became known as the White House Plumbers, which would do the internal wiretapping and surveillance. Whenever anyone from the attorney general's office asked for the FBI's help, Hoover dodged. In return, Nixon's men tried to undermine and bypass Hoover, courting ambitious FBI underlings to help them out. Determined not to let Nixon destroy his legacy, in 1971, Hoover promoted Mark to deputy associate director. A trustworthy Hoover loyalist, the 58-year-old Mark was now the number three man in the entire FBI. 
But with Hoover's number two's health waning, Mark was, in reality, the director's right-hand man. Though Hoover had no intention of retiring soon, he was making his position clear. His vision for the FBI's future was with men like Mark, and not those who would answer to the president. In February 1972, the conflict between Hoover and the executive branch came to a head. A D.C. columnist published a memo written by a lobbyist for the International Telephone and Telegraph Corporation, known as ITT. The memo said that Attorney General John Mitchell had promised to make an antitrust case go away if ITT made a $400,000 donation to the Republican National Convention. If the memo was real, the White House had helped out a corporation in exchange for political donations, which was definitely illegal. Nixon's team panicked. They needed to make the problem go away, and fast. The Nixon lawyers asked the FBI to verify the memo's authenticity. They claimed to believe the memo was a forgery and wanted the FBI to release a statement saying that. But when the FBI's lab examined the document, they found nothing to suggest that it was forged. As the FBI's deputy associate director, Mark found himself fielding calls from Nixon's team, urging the bureau to release the statement. But both he and Hoover refused. The FBI could not lie just to make the president look good. Despite the White House's best efforts, the FBI still refused to be turned into a political tool. And then, on May 2nd, 1972, J. Edgar Hoover unexpectedly died of a heart attack. Nixon immediately named one of his loyalists, L. Patrick Gray, as the acting director of the FBI. The Bureau's hard-won independence was gone. Many of Mark's colleagues handed in their resignation within the month. They had hoped that a career FBI man would be named the acting director. They didn't want to be part of the Bureau's transformation into a political entity. Mark, though, couldn't just walk away. Hoover had trusted him with the FBI. If he resigned, both his and Hoover's life's work would disappear. The least he could do was stay until Pat Gray had gotten up to speed on the inner workings of the Bureau. Besides, there was still a chance that Nixon would nominate an FBI career man for the permanent directorship. To Mark's surprise, Pat was happy to have his help and named him associate director, number two in the FBI. When it became clear that Pat was more interested in campaigning for the permanent director position than actually doing the work, Mark realized that he was essentially in charge of the Bureau. It seemed like the best possible outcome, all things considered. Nixon might have a loyalist in the top spot, but Mark could continue to run the FBI as Hoover would have wanted. Less than three months after Hoover's death, though, everything changed. Mark was about to discover that Nixon would do whatever it took to bring the FBI into line. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. 
Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Mark had barely gotten up on the morning of Saturday, June 17, 1972, when the telephone rang. It was an FBI supervisor from the Washington field office. He was sorry to call Mark at home at 7 a.m., but a strange case had come in, and it was getting stranger by the minute. Several hours earlier, in the middle of the night, a security guard at the Watergate office building in D.C. had noticed a door whose lock had been taped open. He had called the police. They had arrested five men apparently bugging the offices of the Democratic National Committee. The men were wearing suits and carrying thousands of dollars in cash, all of it in crisp, new $100 bills. One of the men had admitted to being a former CIA employee. Stranger still, when the men were brought to a bail hearing that morning, a lawyer had shown up to represent them, but none of the five men had called an attorney. By the time Mark was in the office a couple hours later, he knew that there was more to this story. Clearly, it was political espionage. He just wasn't sure who was behind it or how much bigger it was going to get. Over the coming hours, FBI agents raced to investigate. They quickly discovered connections between the so-called Watergate burglars and a former White House aide named E. Howard Hunt. Hunt had reported to Charles Colson, President Nixon's special counsel. One of the burglars had also previously worked as a security coordinator for the committee to re-elect the president. This organization, known by the acronym CREEP, was run by John Mitchell, now the former attorney general. Mark and the FBI investigators realized the implications. Thus far, no one currently working in the White House was involved in the break-in, but this was clearly going to be a political investigation. On Monday, June 19th, two days after the break-in, Mark was in his office when his phone rang. His secretary informed him that a journalist from the Washington Post was on the line, a young man named Bob Woodward. Mark hesitated. He had known Bob for a couple years, since the two had met by chance at the White House in 1970, Mark had been waiting for a meeting, while the 27-year-old Navy lieutenant had been waiting to deliver some documents, and the two had started chatting. Bob mentioned that he had been taking night classes at George Washington University and was considering law school upon finishing his time in the Navy that fall. Hearing that, Mark had seen something of himself in the ambitious young man. The two had stayed in touch. Since Bob had started a career as a journalist a year and a half earlier, Mark had periodically answered questions for him about stories involving the FBI and Department of Justice. Mark had always insisted, though, that the Cub reporter keep their relationship quiet. His information could only be used on deep background, meaning Bob could never use his name in a story. 
Mark could only be a source for Bob's stories as long as his own position was protected, and he was never seen as a leaker. Which was why, when Bob called him at the office right after the Watergate break-in, Mark knew he had to be careful. If Nixon's people were involved in this, and it seemed like they were, he didn't want to put his career at risk. As the White House plumbers operation had shown, Nixon hated leakers above all. As soon as he picked up the phone, Mark asked Bob not to call him at the office. Bob apologized. He just wanted to know if the FBI was looking into the burglary and if there was a story there. Mark told him there was, but he couldn't say more. A few hours later, Mark's phone rang again. This time, Bob was calling to ask about Hunt. It hadn't taken him long to figure out much of what the FBI had already learned. Mark didn't want to discuss this any further on an FBI line. He told Bob that this had to stay off the record, but yes, Hunt was a major suspect in the break-in as far as the FBI was concerned. Bob could do his own research, though. As the Washington Post published Bob's stories over the next few days, other major news outlets picked up the story, too. They all started to suggest that there was more to the Watergate incident than met the eye. But the Nixon White House categorically denied everything. The White House press secretary publicly dismissed any connection to the administration. The journalists, he suggested, were looking for guilt by association. The FBI, though, already knew this wasn't true. Mark didn't know everything that was happening in the White House, but he saw the pressure that the president's lawyers were putting on Pat, the new acting director. It was clear that they wanted this investigation shut down. It was also clear that they didn't like the press getting a hold of these stories. Bob and his reporting partner, Carl Bernstein, weren't the only journalists who seemed to know what the FBI was learning at any given moment. From the White House's perspective, this information had to be coming from leaks in the FBI. It's unclear now if these were actually leaks, and if they were coming from Mark, as some have theorized. What was clear to everyone was that Pat Gray might lose his job as director if he didn't get the FBI under control. Barely a week after the break-in, Pat ordered an investigation team to interrogate the FBI's Washington field office to find the leakers. But they had no luck. Around the same time, a reporter from Time magazine called the acting director to get his comment on a story. A source had told the reporter that Pat had boasted about shutting down the Watergate investigation within a matter of days. The suggestion was that Pat was protecting Nixon rather than letting the FBI do its job. Pat was livid. Not only did he claim the story wasn't true, but it was clear that the reporter had gotten the tip from a highly placed FBI leaker. Otherwise, he would clearly have dismissed the idea as the lie that it was. Yes, Pat was under pressure from the administration, but he wasn't shutting the investigation down. To this day, it's still unclear if this story came from Mark, as some have since suggested. Meanwhile, the pressure was ratcheting up on Mark, too. A couple days later, his phone rang again. This time, it was a White House lawyer. He wanted these leaks stopped, 
Clearly, the acting director's actions hadn't been enough. Mark refused to take further steps. He knew that the leak investigation Pat had ordered had angered the agents in the FBI office. Like him, they wanted to investigate the case their way, without the White House's interference or pressure, and he wasn't going to be a White House goon. Over the next few weeks, every time FBI agents tried to get information from the White House or the committee to re-elect the president, they were given the runaround. White House lawyers insisted upon sitting in on every FBI interview. The FBI could barely conduct its investigation. Meanwhile, leaks to reporters appeared to continue. Agents tried to complain to the acting director about the obstruction, but Pat dodged. As much as possible, he spent his time visiting offices around the country, leaving Mark in charge. Without Pat's close relationship with the Nixon team, there wasn't much Mark could do officially. The situation reached a breaking point when the FBI traced the money deposited by one of the Watergate burglars to a bank and a lawyer in Mexico City. Before they could go to Mexico to interview the lawyer, though, Pat called it off. He said that he had recently heard from the new deputy director of the CIA, who also happened to be a close Nixon ally. The CIA was supposedly running an operation in Mexico that the interview would disrupt. This was too much for the FBI investigators. The agents running the investigation came to Mark, begging for his help. They were being stymied at every turn. They weren't being allowed to do a full investigation just because it might make the president look bad. And now their own acting director was letting the CIA get in their way, too. Mark confronted Pat. He argued that the FBI's reputation was at stake. If they couldn't investigate, it would soon become clear that the FBI was nothing more than a political cudgel to be wielded by the president. If Pat wanted to get bipartisan Senate confirmation to be the next permanent FBI director, he couldn't let that happen. Pat agreed, and the investigation was allowed to go forward. But it had become clear to Mark and his colleagues just how much pressure the White House was putting on the acting director. Indeed, this pressure was demonstrated again a month or so later, as the investigation was building towards an indictment of the five burglars, Howard Hunt and one of the so-called plumbers. Pat called Mark and the agents running the investigation into his office. He wanted to know if the Watergate case could be closed with these seven men. With the election approaching, doing so could really help the White House. But Mark and the others said the investigation was far from over. They suspected that it went all the way to the top, if not to the president himself, then certainly to his closest advisors. They just had to be able to keep investigating. And Mark knew the only way they'd be able to keep investigating was if the story stayed in the news. It hadn't made a huge splash yet, but the steady drip of information was keeping up the public pressure to know the truth. Which was why, when journalist Bob Woodward showed up at Mark's house one night that summer, Mark sat him down for a chat. Bob and his reporting partner, Carl Bernstein, had just run a story connecting the Watergate burglars to Nixon campaign funds managed by Creep. 
Mark appreciated that the story was out, but it could quickly disappear if the press didn't keep pushing. He was happy to keep giving the reporters information on deep background. But they were going to have to be more careful. Mark couldn't give them tips if he got fired for leaking. So, he laid out for Bob a plan for how they would be in touch in the future. Drawing on his counter-espionage experience, Mark said that Bob should leave a visible signal at the back of his own apartment if he wanted to speak. Mark could check it daily, though he never explained how. Bob proposed putting a flag in a flower pot at the edge of his balcony. In return, if Mark wanted to speak to Bob, the FBI man would draw the hands of a clock on the bottom of page 20 in Bob's daily copy of the New York Times. If either of them saw the signal, they would meet that night at 2 a.m. on the bottom level of a specific parking garage on the Virginia side of Key Bridge, which crossed the Potomac River. However, Mark warned Bob they also had to be careful that no one was following them. The government was so paranoid about leaks that the Nixon people might have someone tailing Bob. In order to avoid them, Bob should take the back exit from his building instead of leaving through the lobby. Then, he should take a taxi to a corner near a hotel. From there, he should walk to the hotel and get another taxi to take him across Key Bridge. He should have that taxi drop him a few blocks from the parking garage. He could walk the rest of the way. If Bob didn't show, Mark would know he'd been followed and they could reschedule for another time. Over the coming months, the FBI continued to investigate in the face of White House pressure. They figured out that over the last year or so, Creep had been hiring people to sabotage the campaigns of Democratic presidential candidates. These so-called dirty tricks were masterminded by people close to Nixon, including former Attorney General John Mitchell. Top members of the president's campaign and administration were involved not just in the Watergate break-in, but a whole host of other crimes. And if the president had anything to say about it, they would never be held to account. Nixon had already publicly stated that White House staff had nothing to do with the break-in, and the public seemed to believe him. Meanwhile, the Justice Department, controlled by Nixon appointees, told the FBI that they were to limit their investigation exclusively to the break-in. In order to keep up the pressure, Mark continued to surreptitiously speak to reporters. Despite their elaborate plans to meet secretly, Bob kept calling him, asking for confirmation on stories The Washington Post was working on. Mark steered the young reporter, urging him to stick to the money trail that would take the investigation all the way to the top. Mark felt confident about the direction things were going. And then, in early October 1972, with the presidential election less than a month away, something changed. That week, nearly four months into the investigation, Mark learned that Pat had just given a top White House lawyer dozens of internal FBI reports about the investigation. These included details about interviews that the FBI had managed to conduct without White House interference. 
The FBI's own acting director had just shown the subject of an investigation what the FBI had on them. He had irreparably compromised the case. Mark couldn't let that happen. In early October 1972, as Mark was grappling with the implications of the FBI director handing over investigation reports to the White House, Bob Woodward got in touch again. This time, he wanted to meet in person. It was exactly the sign Mark needed. That night, Mark waited in the dark parking garage, smoking a cigarette as he waited. He had stopped smoking years ago, but he wanted to calm his nerves. Footsteps echoed through the concrete building. Mark tensed. And then Bob appeared. This time, Mark didn't just confirm or deny Bob's investigating. He gave the reporter details of his own. The two talked for hours, sitting on the floor of the parking garage. Mark told Bob about the dirty tricks operations. He even gave the names of top Nixon aides who were involved in these conspiracies and who had funded the Watergate crew. These were powerful men who had managed to keep their names out of the press thus far. He also said that the FBI was being prevented from investigating further by the White House and the Justice Department. Mark made more claims, many of which have since been disproven, or which the Post reporters couldn't back up. It's unclear whether he lied or was misinformed himself. Regardless, the ball was in Bob's court now. The reporters had to investigate Mark's allegations, source them on the record, and keep them in the news. As the Washington Post published the stories they could source over the next few weeks, Mark's position became increasingly tenuous. For all his precautions, it was clear to everyone involved that someone very high up in either the White House, Justice Department, or FBI was talking to the press. Near the end of the month, Pat called Mark into his office. He confided that the White House suspected Mark of being the leaker and wanted Pat to fire him. Pat had defended him because he knew Mark would never betray the FBI like that. But he thought Mark should know to be careful in his dealings with the White House. A couple weeks later, tensions eased when Nixon was re-elected in a landslide. The steady drip of news stories about Watergate hadn't hurt him. But neither the FBI nor the journalists were anywhere near done with the investigation. As the FBI's case got closer to the president, Mark continued to pass information to reporters. The reporters, in turn, kept building their network of sources and releasing story after story. As it stayed in the news, both the American public and Congress began to pay closer attention. It was clear that there was more going on than the White House's denials suggested. In late January 1973, the five Watergate burglars were convicted. The judge gave them heavy sentences, hoping to encourage them to cooperate with investigators. In early February, about a week later, the U.S. Senate established the Senate Watergate Committee, dedicated to investigating the break-in and the extent of the Nixon administration's involvement. 
Mark continued to meet with Bob and speak to other journalists, but by now, the ball was rolling. Other news outlets were finally picking up the story. National attention was finally focusing on the wrongdoings and misbehavior of the U.S. president and his men. In March 1973, one of the convicted Watergate burglars wrote a letter to the judge on the case, alleging that there had been a cover-up. The burglars, he suggested, had been paid to lie under oath. With this explosive allegation, this was no longer a story that could be swept under the rug. Things were just as tumultuous at the top of the FBI. During the same time, acting director Pat Gray had been officially nominated by Nixon for the directorship. With the administration in the hot seat, everyone knew his confirmation hearings would be tough. Mark may have been disappointed that Pat was still nominated, despite the news stories about the FBI's struggle to carry out its investigation. It was clear to everyone that Pat was a Nixon man. The Senate Confirmation Committee clearly felt the same. In late April, Pat was forced to admit in his hearings that he destroyed White House documents at the request of Nixon's lawyers. He resigned from the FBI the next day. As he did, he recommended that Nixon nominate Mark to be the new director. Despite the administration's suspicion, Pat believed that Mark always had the FBI's best interests at heart. But Nixon refused. The president still believed that Mark was the leak. Instead, he nominated another outsider who was loyal to him rather than the FBI, Bill Ruckelshaus. This time, there was no doubt that Mark was frustrated with the new acting director, and the two butted heads. Unlike Pat, Bill seemed to Mark to be there purely as a Nixon rubber stamp. He seemed to have no respect for the FBI as an institution. Late that spring, Mark's relationship with Bill reached breaking point. The New York Times published a story about illegal wiretaps ordered by Henry Kissinger, Nixon's national security advisor. So few people knew about the wiretaps that it was clear to Nixon's people that Mark must have leaked the story. Mark denied it. But Bill suggested he had enough evidence to hold Mark accountable. The next day, on June 22, 1973, Mark resigned from the FBI after 31 years. He was almost 60 years old. In his mind, he had done his best to protect the Bureau throughout the Watergate investigation. It was clear that Nixon was never going to nominate him to be director. It was time to go. But he wasn't in the clear yet. Even as the Watergate scandal expanded to take out a number of Nixon's top advisors, Bill had the FBI working to stop leaks. Despite Mark having resigned, junior FBI agents interviewed him about whether or not he'd leaked to journalists. Of course, Mark denied the accusations. Over the next year, the United States continued to face the fallout of the Watergate investigation, conspiracy, and subsequent cover-up. Proof came out publicly that President Nixon himself had been involved in the cover-up of the Watergate break-in. The scandal culminated with Nixon's resignation on August 8, 1974. 
That same summer, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein's book about their Watergate reporting, All the President's Men, came out. In it, they referenced a secret, high-level source their editor had codenamed Deep Throat as a joke. Two years later, when a movie version of the book came out, starring Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman, Deep Throat became a national hero. Though he wasn't the journalist's only source, the nickname and the fact that his identity remained a secret elevated the source to mythical status. But by then, Mark's focus was elsewhere. His leaks had helped turn public attention to the abuses of government. Now, though, a newly independent Justice Department was turning the spotlight to other government overreach. One of those targets was the FBI. In the late 1960s and early 70s, while the FBI was trying to maintain its political independence, it was also investigating domestic extremist organizations. One of these was the Weather Underground, a far-left militant group. In the new push for transparency, it had come out that the FBI may have conducted illegal break-ins as part of its surveillance of the group. After Hoover's death, Mark had been part of the leadership team that had authorized this behavior. In 1978, Mark and two other senior FBI officials were indicted for the illegal, unconstitutional searches. In court, Mark accepted responsibility. He claimed that the break-ins had been necessary for national security. Privately, he expressed his frustration that he was having to take the fall for actions that the government had been fine with at the time. He had spent his career serving the FBI and the American people, and now everyone was turning on him. In 1980, Mark and one of his former colleagues were convicted. The once proud G-man's reputation was in tatters. Four years later, his wife Audrey, who had struggled through the whole ordeal, ended her own life. Devastated, Mark blamed himself. He felt like he had failed everyone who had counted on him. Over the next two decades, Mark disappeared from D.C. and the political spotlight. He focused on rebuilding his relationship with his children and helping his daughter raise his grandchildren. The mythical figure of Deep Throat, though, stayed in the public consciousness. Because Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein refused to disclose their source's name, Americans became obsessed with figuring out who the shadowy official was. Soon, his role in the Watergate investigation was blown out of proportion. Popular culture often credited Deep Throat with single-handedly bringing down the corrupt Nixon presidency. Mark's name consistently came up in conversation. After all, he had been one of the few officials who would have known much of the leaked information. And he wasn't a Nixon loyalist. Every time he was asked, though, Mark denied that he'd ever leaked to Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. In fact, he publicly stated multiple times that leaks were reprehensible. He claimed that if someone in his position had leaked, it would be unconscionable and a betrayal of the FBI. It wasn't until Mark began to show signs of dementia in the late 1990s and early 2000s that his commitment to secrecy began to ease. He began to suggest to his family members that he may have been involved in Watergate leaks, though he was ashamed of it. 
His family told him the Deep Throat was seen as a hero and that he had nothing to be ashamed of. Finally, he admitted, I'm the guy they called Deep Throat. Unfortunately, by then, Mark's memory was too far gone for him to recall most of the details of the Watergate years. When Bob came to visit, hoping to find out Mark's motivations all these years later, he realized that Mark himself no longer remembered most of what he'd done. For decades, scholars, journalists, and Watergate players have speculated about the rationale behind the man known as Deep Throat. Some have suggested that he was a patriot who simply wanted to stop corruption and do the right thing. People who knew Mark at the time have speculated that it was his ambition that motivated him. He wanted to undermine the acting director in order to get the directorship himself. In his 1979 memoir, The FBI Pyramid, Mark suggests that he saw himself as the defender of Hoover's FBI. He had to do whatever it took to defend the FBI's reputation, independence, and legacy. Perhaps it was one of these reasons. Perhaps a combination of all three. Or perhaps something else entirely. Whatever his reasons, Mark helped expose corruption at the very top of the U.S. government. He put himself at risk to prove that, at least at the time, no one was above the law. Not even the president. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Whistleblowers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode about the world's biggest lies and the people who expose them. For more information on Mark Felt and Watergate, amongst the many sources we used, we found Felt's book with John O'Connor, A G-Man's Life, and Bob Woodward's book, The Secret Man, extremely helpful to our research. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original for ParCast, produced in partnership with Staple. Executive produced by Drew Cole, Max Cutler, Becky Jacobs, and David McGuire. Developed for podcast by Julian Boireau. Written by Kate Thorman. Produced by Alice Homewood. Mixed, mastered, and sound designed by Rowan Bishop for Stable. And hosted by me, Pat Rodriguez.